This morning reading is from uh, James chapter 5, uh, verses 12 to 20. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Well, all the way through this letter that James wrote all those years ago to the churches in the world that he was living in, uh, we've been saying to you as we've gone through the letter that he's concerned for the church, that it's become too worldly, uh, that there are many people in the church who's who are attempting really to have one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. And uh, he says that, that can't be happening. And he's been us, challenging us about that. As you get to the end of the letter, he begins to sharpen that and tell us exactly why that's so important. James tells us in chapter 4, verse 14, that our lives are just a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes, that it could all be over today. And then in chapter 5, verse 8, which we saw last week, he tells us that we must sit, we, what we must do is establish our hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Very soon, says James, we will meet Jesus face to face one way or the other. Either we go to him through death or he comes to us when he returns. But we're going to meet him and we better be ready. That's what's in his mind as he concludes uh, his letter. Let me pray as we look at it together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter that we've been looking at over these weeks. And as we come to the end, Lord, we know that all the way through you've been telling us that what we need to do is put your word into practice, not just hear it, not even just talk about it, but do it. And so we ask as we look at this last part today, that we'd understand it, help us by your spirit, but also that it would change our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. His concern is this. Will your life, when it's examined by Jesus as you stand before him, will it receive his commendation or his condemnation? Will he look at your life and see a growing and consistent Christ-likeness in both your deeds and your words? Or will he see a double life? A life of inconsistency, of duplicity, of worldliness? Will he see deeds that don't match your profession of faith in Jesus? Will he hear words which reveal that your heart is divided and worldly? We will face him sooner or later 
And James longs to win our hearts wholly for Jesus, that when we meet him, he will commend us and not condemn us. Now, throughout the book, as we've gone through, we've seen that the, the primary area of life where he sees this inconsistency uh, in the churches is that of speech, our speech, what we say. He says, we have untamed tongues. Now, if you've got a Bible, um, we'll flick through the letter quickly, uh, either physical or on your phone, and I'll just show you in each chapter where we've uh, seen him look at our speech. So in chapter 1, look at verse 13. We blame God for tempting us. That's what we do in chapter 1. In chapter 2, towards the end of chapter 2, verse 16, what we do is we speak empty words. We say, be warm and and well-fed, but we don't actually do anything to help those people who are in need. Chapter 3, verse 9, we criticise and we curse others. Chapter 4, there's loads of stuff. We quarrel, we're judgmental, we boast of our abilities. And chapter 5, verse 9, we grumble. And James says, look, this should not be for a Christian believer. And that all this wicked speech brings God's judgment upon us. But he doesn't leave us without hope. For those who trust in Jesus, those who humble themselves, who ask him for help, He's told us that he will change their hearts, give them his wisdom, and change, therefore, their speech as well. He will help them to tame their tongue so that we might receive Christ's commendation. This last part of the letter, chapter 5, which Matt read to us before, in verse 12, begins with the words, above all. In other words, this is the thing that he wants most for us, the thing that's Uh, most critical for us, that he's going to leave ringing in our ears. And it's three positive ways to use our speech, three areas of Christ-like speech that he longs for us to live consistently in as those saved by the grace of Christ. So here they are, and they're there on the service sheet as well, just in points separated out for you, that as we wait the coming of Jesus, we are to speak plainly to all, to pray with the sick and the sinful and to plead with the strong. Being ready for Jesus means that we're to speak plainly to all, to pray with the sick and the sinful and to plead with the strong. So first of all, verse 12, speak plainly to all. But above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. What brings God's condemnation? Oaths. Now, that's not something that we're very familiar with, is it? Oaths. It's not so much the making of oaths exactly here that's a problem. It's the making of deceitful oaths, which we then break. It is the integrity of a person's word that's in view. 
So imagine uh, you want a new drive in front of your house. And so what you do is you say to someone, look, if you lay, if you lay that drive for me, uh, then I'll pay you £5,000. Now, I know, I've no idea if that's an expensive drive or a cheap drive, but let's just assume uh, that's about right. Sounds good, they say. And so you say, OK, well, do the job, and I'll give you the money when you're finished. And they say, well, look, I'm interested in all that, but that, that's going to be about a week's work. That's quite a lot of work for me. And I really, you know, how do I, how do I know for sure that you're going to pay me? And so you say, well, okay, listen, I swear on the life of my children that I will pay up the full amount. And with that, they're convinced. Okay, that's a deal. You shake hands and they set to work. Then a week later, they finish the job, done a good job. They come back to you for the cash. And instead of £5,000, you give them £2,000. Oi, what's going on here, mate? They say. You said £5,000 and you swore it on your children's life. And you say, well, actually, what you didn't know is that I don't have any children. So that didn't really count, did it? Tough luck. You should have been more careful when you make deals like that. Now, that might sound like an unlikely scenario. It does sound like an unlikely scenario. But that's because of because we live in a written culture. We have contracts and things like that. In the days, uh, in the culture that James is writing to, it's an oral culture. And so the making of oaths like that is supposed to bind a person to a deal. But you can see how easily it can be abused. And it can be particularly easy to abuse it if you are rich and powerful. That's the kind of people James has had in mind in chapter 5. They could promise one thing by swearing an oath and then do something completely different that a weak, poor person could do nothing about. It's the modern equivalent of a big business burying something in the small print to exploit the customer. A common practice. It seems that this kind of thing is going on in the church that James is writing to And James says, just as his brother Jesus had said before him, that this kind of deceitful speech is incompatible with the Christian life. James says that your word, not just in business deals, but in all things, should be utterly trustworthy. Your speech should be plain, no deceit, no duplicity, no double tongues. In fact, people shouldn't have to bother taking an oath from you because you've got such integrity, it's just not needed. You always do what you say you will do. Followers of Jesus, the one who declared himself to be the truth, must be people of truth in all their speech. Followers of the one who always keeps his word must keep their word in all things. And notice that to God, that is not a small thing. We sometimes think, if we don't do what we say, it's a small thing. Not to God. To do this brings his condemnation. James wants better for us, that we speak plainly to all people, 
that we are known for our honesty and our integrity. People should be able to trust our word. Of course, that's going to make all the difference when it comes to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to people. So that's the first thing. Speak plainly to all. The second thing is the bulk of our passage, verses 13 to 18. And before we look at that, just a little exercise. Just have a look down at the text. Verses 13 to 18. There's a word that's repeated in every verse. So just have a look. What is, what is that word? Pray. Yes, thank you. Someone responded out loud. That's great. Yeah, thank you. Pray or prayed or prayer. It's there in every verse. Clearly that means that this section is about prayer. Being ready for Jesus means that we're a people who pray all the time about everything. When are we to pray? All circumstances. Verse 13 is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. That is a kind of prayer, as, we, as, as David explained earlier on. Talking to God is one of the best things we can do with our mouths in every situation we find ourselves in. But James wants us to take one example of a serious life circumstance and get us to think more clearly about it in this area. And he focuses in on serious sickness. In that case, you are to get someone else to pray. The kind of sickness that's in view here, I don't think it's just someone with the sniffles uh, or a dodgy tummy. I think it's the close-to-death kind of sickness, the kind that's gone beyond the help of the doctors. And there's a few reasons to think that in the text. Um, the first thing is that the person here has to call the elders of the church to them, it implies that they can't go to the elders um, because they're so ill. And the elders are to come, when they come there, to pray over them. And that, that word in, in the language there is, implies a position of being over the top of someone that uh, they're perhaps lying down or sitting down at least um, as they pray and as they uh, anoint them with oil. We'll get back to what, that, what that's about a bit later on. Just to, as well as that, you get language in verse 15 of saving and raising them up, uh, which all implies the deathbed. This has a desperation to it, the situation. This then is what to do with the dying, with the severely ill. The sick person is to call the elders of the church. They are to come to them and pray for them and anoint them with oil. That's the situation. Now here's the difficult bit. Here we go, verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. And we're going to spend a little bit of time thinking about what this actually means. Why is this tricky? Well, it's tricky because really of the seeming certainty of the verse, isn't it? The sick person will be saved. The Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. And our question is, how is all that true? Because, well, actually, we know people who have been 
prayed for in this way who have died. And indeed, everybody dies in the end of some kind of sickness, don't they? So how can this be true? There's a few ways that we might think it could be true. Um, we think, well, perhaps we don't do it right. You know, if we use coconut oil instead of olive oil, that messes the whole thing up. Perhaps we don't say the right words in the right order. Or this is the sort of favourite one. Is it because we don't have enough faith? Now that's why people don't get healed. Is that what it is? Well, I don't think it's any of those things. But it's not easy to work out what it means. And just to say, um, when, you, when you have things that are difficult, it's really good to talk to some other people. Uh, in preparing, we have a sermon uh, preparation meeting on a Wednesday. Really good to talk with the other staff team about uh, passages like this. And I've been really helped by um, a guy called Kevin Newman, who's a previous uh, minister um, who I served under. So I've had some help, <laughs> just to say. I'm going to have a stab at explaining it. But there would be a range of opinions about what this passage means within the Christian communities. I'm very happy to talk afterwards um, if you have any questions. Now, just as a general principle, when you get a tricky passage or a tricky verse like this, uh, the key is to let the context help you out. So let's just think about James's letter and what we've seen. We've seen one of the big issues is worldliness. People are worldly in their hearts. They've, they've been trying to keep one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. They're divided. They're adulterous, James says in chapter 4. That worldliness has caused all sorts of problems in the church. We saw this all the way through chapters 3 and 4. Christian brothers and sisters are cursing one another. They're judging each other, they're arguing with each other, and they're grumbling about each other. And James has consistently been saying in all of these places that when you act like this, you bring yourself under God's judgment. The Lord fiercely loves his church, and he won't stand by and see it harmed. That's the context of the book. Here then in verse 15, James makes a connection between sin and sickness. It seems that it might be possible that someone may be brought under judgment by God because of their sin and have a serious illness. Now it might be possible, it may be this cause. James is not saying that every serious illness is caused by a particular sin that person's committed. He's not saying that. We get sick and die because we live in a fallen world. And the vast majority of the time, we can't draw direct lines between a particular sin and a particular sickness. We can't say, you have cancer because you stole from your mother or, or whatever it might be. We can't do that. There's a really important if in verse 15. Let me read it again. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. If they have sinned, they'll be forgiven. That means, of course, that they might not have. But James is saying that there is a possibility that serious illness is caused by serious sin as a temporary judgment from God. 
especially by sins which cause disunity in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, if we're going to say that, then it would be helpful if it said that somewhere else in the Bible, just to confirm that we're on the right track. And it does. In fact, Paul says something very similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which Roger preached to us uh, way back before lockdown. It seems like about four years ago. Um, it was only sort of a few months ago, uh, 1 Corinthians 11. Now, if you have a Bible, it'd be helpful to turn there. Um, if you don't, don't worry, I'll, I'll read it out to you. But uh, it'd be helpful to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, what's he discussing in 1 Corinthians 11? He's discussing community sins. He's discussing a community-breaking sin, uh, that of showing favoritism at the Lord's Supper. The rich were getting uh, all the food and the poor were missing out. And so just note that it's very similar to James chapter 2. Then he says this in verse 29, talking about the bread and the wine. He says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, that is, that he means the body of believers there, Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. See, same thing, a connection in some cases, not every case, but in some cases, between serious sins against brothers and sisters in the church and serious, even terminal, illness. Now here's the key to understanding why this happens. Why would God do that? He says, and he answers that question in the next verse, verse 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. I'll come back to James chapter 5. This Paul's making there the same point that James is making in chapter 5. That God sometimes brings sickness into a person's life not to punish them. Sometimes we would think, well, why is God punishing me? Not to punish them, but to discipline them and save them from eternal condemnation. It is given to them to save them from worldliness, that they might repent and be forgiven before they meet Jesus face to face in judgment. Now if that's right, and that is, that is what I think is going on here, it makes sense of a couple of things. It makes sense of the elders and the oil. It makes sense of the elders because it, it shows why the elders need to be involved, that it's not mere sickness going on uh, in this situation. So you might be thinking, well, may, maybe the elders' prayers, they're more effective... Uh, No, that's not the case. It's because there's more to deal with than just the sickness here. There's a pastoral conversation to be had. They're to pray for the whole person, not just the sickness, but the sin. They're to understand with discernment the whole situation of what's going on. And probably they're there to restore the person, to make peace with God and to make peace uh, with those they've sinned against in the church. So it makes sense of the elders. It makes sense of the oil too. And the oil bit's a bit strange to us. We're not quite sure what that's about. Uh, it's an Old Testament symbol. Uh, they would do it at the point of consecration. They would do it 
to dedicate someone's life to God, be that a priest or a, or a king or a prophet. And so this, then, it seems, would, be, would indicate that it's, it's a demonstration, a physical sign of their reconsecration, of their rededication to God, that they're restored to God and restored to the church. It's a sign of their repentance. James has been wanting, all the way through his letter, this kind of whole life rededication, recommitment from his hearers before they meet Jesus. Okay, you say, that still leaves the question, doesn't it? Will this person be physically healed there and then? And my answer to that is maybe. Yes, if that's the reason they got sick. I think we can say that. There is a definiteness about this. But keep in mind the context that there's something more important going on, a more important healing or saving going on than merely the physical. And verse 15 is, I think, deliberately ambiguous to help us to see that. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Is it talking about physical or temporary? Uh, sorry, physical and temporary healing, or spiritual and eternal healing? Language of save and raise them up. It kind of sounds like both. Could be either. I think that's the point. That physical sickness is not their biggest problem. Their biggest problem is their sin against their brothers and sisters, and the judgment that brings from God. That's what they really need saving from. The physical healing may come through the prayer, depending on the cause of the illness. But even then, it would only ever be temporary. When we repent and recommit our hearts to God, that spiritual salvation will certainly come and will last for eternity. Heavy bit over. Okay, you can take a deep breath. That's that's the the, the tricky bit. Um, It gets a little bit simpler um, as we go uh, from here on out. So that first part of the section section is is pretty dramatic. It describes a desperate situation. Um, But if you've been paying attention to the government regulations and all the kind of things on the news and all that stuff, we know now that prevention is better than cure, isn't it? That's why you're wearing masks here this morning. Prevention's better than cure. There's a way, says James, to avoid the deathbed drama. There's a kind of vaccination, if you like, uh, so that you might not get into that kind of trouble. And it comes in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So he expands his horizon a bit. He's no no longer just talking about the elders and the sick person. It, It broadens out into the way that we're to work with each other. Here's how to prevent yourself from getting into a serious mess. Keep on confessing your sins to each other and keep on praying for each other in that battle with sin. This is a great way for us to use our speech, to own up when we've messed up, to be honest and accountable with our brothers and sisters as we wrestle with the sins in our lives to keep short accounts with them when we sin against them, and to pray with them and pray for them. Not so much for their circumstances, but pray for them in their holiness, in their walk with the Lord Jesus. 
This regular pattern of confession and prayer with each other will save us from many troubles. Sometimes when we're praying, though, prayer just seems really small and ineffective, doesn't it? You ever have that? You pray in your room or you pray with someone else and you think, is this really kind of making much difference? Well, James closes this section by telling us that that's not true. He says, look, this kind of prayer, this prayer for each other, it has tremendous power in the Christian life. We can't say that God can't deal with this issue or God can't deal with this sin in my life. Some of us will feel like that from time to time. Maybe we're feeling like that right now. It's not true. He says this kind of prayer puts at our disposal the same power that changed the weather report in the time of Elijah. Prayer can stop the rain for days, and prayer can bring the storm. If God does that in response to prayer for a normal man like Elijah, then he can change our hearts and lives as we pray for each other. The prayer of a righteous person, is a consistent person, has great power as it's working. That's the end of the second thing. So first of all, we're to speak plainly with each other. Secondly, we're to be praying for the sick and the sinful, praying with each other. And now we come to the end of the book and we are left with a final note ringing in our ears. Verse 19 and 20, plead with the strength. My brothers and sisters, if any among, anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. There's a real echo of the gospel here, isn't there? That this is exactly what Jesus did for us, that he left the comforts of heaven, that he pursued us, we who'd wandered so far from him, came into this world in our mess, loved us so much, and willingly gave his life to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could come back to God, that our souls may be saved. Real echoes of that in these last two verses. And it's a fitting end to the letter. James has been pleading with us all the way through, hasn't he? That we put our trust solely in Jesus Christ, that we forego our wilderness, that we repent of our divided hearts, that we return in wholehearted devotion to Jesus, to love him above all things. And as he closes, he says, now go and do likewise. Is there anything more Christ-like that we can do with our speech than these last two verses? To look around at our brothers and sisters, and when we see that one of them is starting to wander away, to go after them to pursue them, to plead with them to return to him before they meet him face to face. Let me just ask you to think about that for a moment. Who is in your mind when you see these verses here? Who is wandering? I was having a conversation with someone just before the service and we, we could both think of people who we long to return to Jesus Christ who had lost their way. Who's in your mind? Who have you seen who's 
going the wrong way. And that you, need, you know now that you need to go and talk to them and plead with them to return to Jesus. Let's do that. As we come to the end of James, what have we seen? Well, we've seen that Jesus is coming back and that our lives are just a mist. We'll see, we've seen that we'll meet him very soon, one way or another. And the question is, will we be ready? Will we be ready to meet him? James says, be ready to meet him by letting your speech always be truthful so that you might not be condemned. Be ready to meet him while you pray, as you pray for the sick and the sinful, that they might be restored. And be ready to meet him and help others to be ready to meet him by pleading with those who are straying that they might return to Jesus. These are big, serious things for us to think about this morning. Let's ask the Lord now for his help to put this into practice. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you that when we were wandering far from you, you did not let us go, but you came for us and you pleaded with us and you brought us back and saved our souls from death and covered our sins. Oh Lord Jesus, we praise you for all that you have done for us. And as we have this final note ringing in our ears this morning, we ask that you would make us people like you, people who tell the truth, people who pray, who care for others, people who chase after those who have gone astray. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.